Welcome to Talking to Myself. I'm Elizabeth Monson. I'm Elizabeth Meyer. And this is our podcast where we read self-help books and talk about them, pull out the most interesting and helpful tidbits, lessons, what have you, and also talk about how we would use them in our real lives, IRL. And this week we read Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong by Eric Barker. And why did we choose this book? We chose this book because it was recommended to us, actually. So Elizabeth Monson, EM1, got me hooked on a um, series by the New York Times called Smarter Living, in which they sort of compile and curate. uh, It's a weekly newsletter. Yeah, it's a newsletter. The point is just to uh, sort of aggregate the news that will help you have a smarter, happier, maybe more efficient life. So we reached out to the editor. We're just having a little chit-chat, and he recommended this book to us. Yeah. I love the newsletter also. Highly recommend subscribing. Be good. Yeah. I feel like I've, like, almost every week gotten something out of it that I wouldn't have otherwise. So let's talk about Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Can you give us a brief summary? Yeah, so this is the briefest of brief summaries. But essentially, um, our author looks at the science behind what separates extremely successful people from the rest of us. That's literally a quote. And gives examples, like does a lot of storytelling, has case studies, has scientific results about essentially, yeah, like what makes someone super successful rather than just a normal person. And then also gives pretty tangible steps that you can take to be more successful in whatever you do. Um, And I really liked it. I felt like his, I felt like the storytelling was a little bit much sometimes, but I felt like his tactics for kind of like leveling up how successful you are, were quite excellent. Agree. I thought it was a really good read. Uh, And I think in order for our listeners to get the maximum benefits of it, we are going to break it down um, chapter by chapter, starting with the first one. That's a very good place to start. That's a good place to start. (laughs) (laughs) So chapter one, should we play it safe and do what we are told if we want to succeed? What do you think? Wait, oh, I guess we should have, like, I don't know. We should have voted beforehand. We can take a vote still. What, should we? Do you play by the rules? I have questions in here on some of these about what you do. Okay. I yeah. mean, pre-reading the chapter and just acknowledging that question, I know we're supposed to say that we're not going to play by the rules if we want to succeed. Right. I'm a rule player. Oh, usually. such a rule abider. I really like rules. Um, and I feel very uncomfortable violating them. But let's talk a little bit about what he means here. So he starts off this chapter by talking about valedictorians, right? I think that's how he opens the book. Yeah. It's, so it's insight from valedictorians, people who feel no pain, and piano prodigies. Right. Valedictorians, he says, are a prime example of people who've played by the rules. Yep. And that's usually uh, one of the key factors in their high school success. But he also goes on to say that very few valedictorians ever become... Exceptional. Exceptional. 
he actually calls he says millionaires. Yeah, which I, I have yeah. a hard time with because then it's basically equating success to being rich. Yeah, I feel like this was a poor way to start out this book because he does make a lot of assumptions about a lot of like value-based assumptions about success. And so he, in this part, does closely align success with just like having the most money you can possibly have. Um, but that is that doesn't necessarily carry throughout all of it. Yeah, it's true. This is very much playing off of the entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Where he says that um, there are two types of people, filtered leaders and unfiltered leaders, right? And so the filtered leaders are basically the valedictorians, mm-hmm. the rule abiders, um, the ones who get routinely promoted for good behavior and for... Uh, operating within the construct of the institution that they're working for. Those that are great are those entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's figures, like all the... leaders that come in through the window, he calls, instead of the door. Yeah. But it's like everyone's familiar with those stories. Like yeah. Zuckerberg didn't finish college. Steve Jobs didn't. Like, I don't know who else didn't finish college, but so many great people who right. have added so much to this world an example in here that I sort of liked um, in talking about the filtered versus the unfiltered. Mm -hmm. He says that Steve Jobs, speaking of Steve Jobs, was in a pinch while he was overseeing movie productions at at Pixar. Pixar, Right. And he hired a big dog producer, was it? Mm -hmm. Who was at the helm of the Iron Giant, which saw a lot of success. And he brought him in, and there was sort of, like, low motivation. They weren't really sure how they were going to get off the next box office hit. They thought Pixar might be in trouble. And uh, the producer they brought on board said, give me all of your, essentially, your black sheep artists, your (laughs) unfiltered artists, um, the ones who want to take creative liberties, the ones who are frustrated by process and have crazy ideas. In other words, the guys who are about to walk out the door, giving yeah. all of the sort of frustrated, built-up, pent-up, creative nutsos. He sort of let them come up with new processes that were later implemented into the way that videos were made from that point forward. And the product of this sort of weird task force was the movie The Incredibles, which ultimately won an Oscar for the best animated film. And made so much money. Yeah. I thought that that was an interesting example, mostly because he's talking about um, bringing together non-traditional, really dynamic personalities with sort of a singular vision. Mm -hmm. They have different ways of doing things, and they totally made it work. And they also, sort of in taking a chance, were able to affect change in an antiquated process. Yeah. There was kind of, there's like a summary that I liked how they put that also with following rules versus not and it was that the following the rules doesn't create success it just eliminates extremes both good and bad while this usually while this is usually good it all but eliminates downside risk it also frequently eliminates earth-shaking accomplishments so the Steve Jobs Pixar situation is like full risk full earth-shaking accomplishment Right, exactly. So I think we should also say that this 
this book does a lot of the only highlighting the most exemplary cases of whichever point Eric Barker is trying to illustrate. So mm-hmm. obviously he's not going to talk about all the the times where a creative person was totally nuts and insane and negatively impacted everyone around them but right. they didn't follow right. the rules. Those black sheep were all like dying while working on The Incredibles. No. I'm sure it was a great experience. They probably loved it. But, so what is it, like, what's the summary of it? Does playing by the rules pay off? Okay, this is what I loved. It basically said that either way is totally fine, and actually what matters more is the people around you. And so, okay, I'm going to read direct. Quote, unquote. Whether you're a filtered doctor or a wild, unfiltered artist, research shows the pond you pick matters enormously. Um, they looked at, I'm not quoting anyway, they looked at Wall Street analysts who went to work for competitors, and when they went and worked for competitors, they always basically like stopped performing well because they didn't have their team. But they looked at people who brought their team with them, and they always performed incredibly well. So whether you're filtered or unfiltered, make sure you're choosing your pawn wisely and leveraging your type, leveraging your strengths, knowing your context, and like build a team around you who can support like the way you work. It makes sense, but I think it's also like it's not the easiest to do. You also have to be very self-aware, but it's totally true like you can be either way as long as you know what you like and like are able to create a structure around it that like helps you thrive. Cool. All right, so chapter two. Do nice guys finish last? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like you're supposed to be, like, totally. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think so, because the people that, like, I respect, a lot of them are so nice. I agree with you. I also think that nice guys finish last is something that's been said for so long, and now there are kind of critical changes taking place in the in the workplace on purpose to reward niceness and integrity. Yeah. So that's something that we're lucky to experience a lot of. Totally. So the examples here are gang members, pirates, and serial killers. Right. Dun, dun, dun. None of them seem like they're nice guys. Okay, but literally, I was so confused when he used pirates as an example of nice guys. Our author starts out by framing this chapter by saying that 80% of our evaluations of other people come down to two characteristics, warmth and competence. I do find that so interesting. It really is, right? I feel like I've read that before, but it was a nice reminder. But also, it's anecdotally kind of true, right? Those are usually the criteria on which you analyze someone new that you meet, especially in a professional setting. Yeah, totally. And he goes on to even say that, like, people would rather work with nice people than competent competent people. But also that people largely assume that those traits are inversely related. You really can't be both. Right. I am competent and ice cold. So why do jerks succeed? I think that's the first way that he frames this. Yeah. This ultimate argument that he makes because people who break rules are seen as having more power than those who obey rules right those who talk first 
are seen as smarter than those who don't. And people in power, which are a lot of times equated to these jerk types, are assertive about what they want, and they don't shy away from telling others what they've achieved. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the pirate example then, since he since we brought it up, and he says that the pirates are the nice guys. Yeah. So traditionally, we all think of pirates as the jerks. They're the ones who loot and steal. Yeah. But he actually, he goes back to talking about pirates sort of historically. Uh, yeah. And I'm probably going to misquote this, but essentially he's saying that their kind of like badassery is all a marketing scheme. They really didn't want conflict. They wanted people to just give in Be to them. Be scared away. Be scared, yeah. right? So they created all these things about what pirates will do if they catch you and... Um, the reason he calls them the nice guys is because of the way that they divide up their earnings and um, right, they were very fair, they were very fair and equal, even across like racial barriers. They mm-hmm. really didn't have um, any predispositions towards one type of person. Everyone on the crew was an equal. Interesting, interesting nice guy. Um, yeah, it's a stretch, but I mean, like similar, the gang member example. He talked about how if you looked at, what was it, like, incarceration rates for gangs, it wasn't, like, there were different methods where people were trying to stay small so that their gang would be under the radar. Or if you're, the thought idea was, that, like, if your gang got too big, you would be more of a police target. And none of that proved to be true. It was more about how tightly you were connected with other people in the community and so if you had like a more like a stronger connection to the community you were less likely to be is this totally wrong no I think it's right I mean I think the reason that he pulled out any of these examples in the first place is to just show that the conclusion is multifaceted that there are traits that these like traditionally bad groups um yeah, of course, all display and prominence, but then there are other things that they do that are actually worth emulating. Um, for the gang members, it was all about trusting cooperation. Mm-hmm. So he does kind of deep dive into why that came to be in the first place, but I think maybe that's less meaningful than the fact that you can be more productive and efficient um, and better at achieving your goals, even if that goal is something gang-related. Nefarious. Right. If you figured out how to create and cultivate trust within your community. Right. And then what he really goes into from there are is an example. What's your favorite example? He talks about... Uh, the World Happiness Index, and he basically says, if you think you've ever been in a really unhappy place, chances are you haven't, literally, unless you've been to Moldova, which is classified on the index of countries, happiness levels of countries, to be the unhappiest country. The reason why people are so unhappy is because there's absolutely no trust whatsoever. It, no trust stifles uh, cooperation, and there's no value in people contributing to a common good, which in turn causes a lot of um, discontent 
so everyone becomes selfish. Wasn't the example in some other book we read about the pitching in for beer at the party? Yeah, what book was that? It was just like... Enough if, people come and don't have beer, then there's no beer. Because everybody like, thinks that they're there. Trust and cooperation has eroded. Right, exactly. And then on the flip side, in Iceland, it's such a small, tightly woven community that an actual legitimate excuse for being late to work could be just like that you ran into someone you knew. Just people see each other all the time. They know everyone. Um, they know sort of like gossip for better or for worse. And I guess he's saying in this case it is for better because they've built such a degree of familiarity within their community that there's just this implicit uh, trust that they've been able to build. And then he goes on to to talk about how this can be compared to nice guys mm-hmm. finishing last. And he basically says, like, the Moldova example, at that type of behavior, surface level, can get you kind of far, at right. least initially. Um, but it destroys the environment that has enabled you to get that far in the first place mm-hmm. because you have poisoned or polluted that well with selfishness. Yeah. And it means that it's basically bad behavior is really infectious and that you start to create other rule breakers like yourself. So once you don't have a society anymore in which that type of behavior gets you ahead. Yeah, it's contagious. and Right. Everyone behaves badly. What did you think about this section? So my main takeaway from this section... um, I mean, I really, I also liked those examples and find them to be very true. Um, but I think he basically asks these questions that are like this or that. And obviously the answer is a combination of the two. For people to really trust you, you kind of have to behave well and badly with them or like you have to be like good and a jerk. So the idea is like, you cooperate with me, I cooperate with you. You betray me, I betray you. It's that simple. I'm reading here. Getting too clever muddies the waters, and the other person can quickly become very skeptical of you. Once that person sees clear cause and effect, he or she is more likely to jump on board and realize that everyone will benefit. Um, and I really liked that because, like, it's true, like, people play like, these little mind games with each other, but someone trusts you when they know, like, yeah. If I, like, if I help you, you'll help me. If I, like, screw with you, you're going to screw with me. Like, that makes sense. It's easy for people to understand. And I think even if when that happens, like, yeah, you just build a level of trust with people. And it's, like, how you can still work with people in a good setting that, like, haven't totally cooperated with you or something. Like, so I feel like that's a good takeaway where it's, like, it's not about being good or bad. It's about being consistent and having strong lines that you draw on both sides. Yeah. And that's how you build trust with people. And it's, yeah, it's not about being like inherently good or inherently bad. It's being trustworthy and that builds cooperation. Yeah. So in, in the roundup of this chapter, one of the bullets that I liked that I think ties in nicely to that is to cooperate first. So you should. Yes. You have to start. Yeah. 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 Because that is how you engender a feeling of reciprocity. Yes. You have to start by cooperating. But then afterwards, like, if something does happen, you shouldn't just, like, let it go, essentially. Right. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Also, there was a part where he talks about, like, don't worry about well how well the other side is doing. Worry about how well you're doing. 
And it just is like a reminder not to get too caught up in what the other person is doing or thinking. Like you just have to be consistent with yourself and like do the right thing. Right. I mean, another point that I liked from his roundup was to pick the right pond. He says, don't move to Moldova. But what he means for people who are, um, you know, maybe looking to move on to a new job or accept a new role Mm -hmm. or figuring out what's a good next step to take in their careers. So really, before you enter a, a company, think of it as an entity on your own index of happiness and look at the job and the culture because there are certain elements of it you're really not going to change. So think, look at the people you're going to be working with and think, could I fit into this? Is this what I want to be like day to day? Yeah, how much kindness or jerkiness or respect or disrespect. He says that like you're never going to change a place or like a collective behavior it's only going to change you so make sure you're going somewhere that you like how they act and how they treat each other which is another one of those like then the answer is any answer the answer to the question first posed is what you make of it yeah I mean there's a lot of that I will we should also note that each of these chapters so it's broken down into all of these questions and then the structure is that there's a few case studies but each chapter basically ends with like a to-do list or a list of questions you can ask yourself and those are actually super helpful for structuring how you become more successful um so if you were to read this book and like wanted the cliff notes version you could kind of skip to the end of the chapters just do some but they're still really good yeah all right so chapter three you ready to move on yep do quitters never win and winners never quit what Navy SEALs, video games, arranged marriages, and Batman can teach us about sticking it out when something, something, something. <laughs> Turn page. Turn page. Sometimes the Kindle's so stupid. <laughs> so did you have a particular example you wanted to dive into? I mean, I do always find it super interesting that arranged marriages end up happier long term yeah. than quote-unquote love marriages. Right. Um, I find that a fascinating. Well, so he breaks this section into two questions. Do quitters never win? And then yeah. he sort of talks about that question. And then he says, do winners never quit? Yeah. And part of it is saying, like, when to persist. And I think that's really when the Navy SEALs come in. It's like, what is the component that makes persistence worth it? Yeah, and also grit. Like, I feel like grit, right? grit is such a hot topic in like self-help and business it is now so we can talk about that but I think since you brought up arranged marriage I think he is equating to the winners never quit yeah he's basically saying like it kind of was a silly a silly way to bring in the example but a fruitful example nonetheless he says um a marriage is when you decide you're gonna quit dating and it's like everybody knows that they get to that point in a relationship where they want to take the next step that it's time to quit dating right and move on to the next phase of marriage and he talks a lot about soulmates and saying you know what if you what are the chances you really would find your perfect soulmate oh my gosh but did you find that so interesting that they've like studied how to find your best marriage partner yes and he's basically saying no one's ever going to do this because like your results are going to be crazy yeah okay so here's what it is listeners you're supposed to date 10 people Say no to all of them, but remember 
how your favorite person made you feel and then date people until you find someone who makes you feel better than that person did, which is just like, that makes so much sense. But he goes on to say that most people will not do that, obviously. And so he takes a look at why arranged marriages seem to be happier over time. And when couples who kind of find one another organically are first polled about the happiness level of their marriage. Yeah, they're initially happier. They're initially a lot happier than the arranged marriage couples. But that over time, um, arranged marriages are happier on average. I believe it's because when you go, there's sort of all these, like, social conditions that allow you to believe that marriage is perfect. And yeah. once you find your your partner, that's sort of that. You always want the same set of circumstances that surrounded, like, your early courtship and your wedding and your honeymoon. And, and they never had that, so it only gets better? Well, so with an arranged marriage, there's no expectation other than what they already have. They yeah. understood that this is their life. So they start to figure out how to work with one another to make it the best it can possibly be because there's no alternative. They're right. not going to get divorced. It's not an option. Interesting. Um, yeah, so my main takeaway from this section, and this one has actually the longest like question and answer exercise portion at the bottom, if I remember. But he basically says that you should try a lot of things in your life and then when you find the one that you like that's when you apply grit so it's like you should be testing things all the time like do I like this or that or this and like have a lot of variety in your life especially if you're someone who wants feels like they want to dedicate more time and energy to something but they don't know exactly what that is like you just need to try out a lot of different options right now and then when you find that thing that's when you double down and like really don't quit at it like dedicate your time dedicate your energy well he also says i think the biggest component of grit is optimism right so optimism is so predictive of grit that studies show you can confidently hire salespeople based on optimism alone yeah pretty crazy and the the navy seals example obviously was all about grit but it was about that element of positivity where the seals who graduated the program had a secret ingredient of grit in which they talked to themselves very positively they told themselves stories amp it up yeah yeah they just feel like it's gonna work out you keep trying yeah it's interesting it's pretty motivational i mean i think yeah the fact that, like, scientifically, if you tell yourself that something is going to work out, it has a better chance of working out. If you can get yourself to believe that, it actually works. I mean, the ga- the gaming component was pretty closely related to that. Yeah. And they talked about actual games. that Literal games. Wherein, um, you know, game designers purposely create a world in which you can both fail and succeed mm-hmm. where success is ultimately achievable but that you hit little barriers along the way mm-hmm. uh, and obviously he likens a well-designed game to um, like a potentially an office environment he also has another little anecdote about a climber who fell and broke his leg and thought he was left for dead but created little 
um, gaming milestones for places that he could hit and hit and hit yeah, until he finally got back to camp. If I can do this in an hour, if I can do this in 20 I minutes, if I can... this glacier yeah. in this amount of time. And um, there's opportunities throughout your life to gamify things in little ways, and that helps you with small wins that keeps you going. Right, exactly. You, so the goal at work, if you want to apply this to a professional setting, is to maybe improve your presentation skills. Mm-hmm. Think of some, some new thing that you want to learn. Um, find a game that you can win because people are inherently looking for some kind of job or some kind of output that's going to give meaning to their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this part was great. It's like quantity will lead to quality. So, like, try things, put effort into it, and eventually something of quality will hopefully work. What about the WHOOP method? I liked that. So he also comes up, yeah, like a system called WHOOP, which is stands for Wish Outcome Obstacle Plan that helps you with any of your goals. Um, so it's like you're fantasizing your wishes, I want an awesome job. And you really have to crystallize it in your mind. So... The outcome would be, I want to work as a VP at Google. And then what obstacle might you have, which is, I don't know how to get an interview there. Then you address it. And the plan is, I'm going to check LinkedIn and see if I know anyone who works there and connect me with HR, which is like, not enough of a plan to get a job at Google. It's a plan nonetheless. And that's kind of like a way you can gamify the different challenges that you have come up. Whoop. Loop. All right, what chapter are we on? Is this four? Yep, this is networks. It's not what you know, it's who you know, unless it really is what you know. Yeah. Eh. Question for you. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I don't even think I know. So I, I, the way that you can tell if you're an introvert or an extrovert is not whether you like talking to people or you like snuggling on your couch home alone but what activity you choose when you need to recharge your batteries. So that's how I know I'm an introvert. I really like talking to people. Um, I mostly prefer one-on-one or one-on-two or two-on-three conversations as opposed to big party scenes, um, which is also a trait of an introvert. But I definitely, when I recharge, it's because I'm alone doing an activity by myself. Total introvert. But I think about it differently is... When you're with people, does that energize you or tire you Yeah. afterwards? Oh, man. It totally tires me afterwards. Yeah, it's so I exhausting. Still love, I still love my friends. Yeah, it's like though. you still have fun, but yeah. it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, but extroverts make more money, get prom- more promotions, and are more likely to become leaders. Womp womp. Why would you choose to be an introvert? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about his perspective on extroverts versus introverts. He does go through some sort of common occurrences that are associated with both. Mm -hmm. But like the other chapters, his conclusion or the point that he's really hitting home is like, it's fine to be either one of them. Just know who you are and deal with it. And pick. Or like, yeah, find situations that support that. Right. Um, it is, it's also interesting. I mean, he does talk a lot about how people are, seek others like them, like introverts tend to like introverts, extroverts tend to like extroverts. And did you 
read this line in this book? Frankly, it's downright scary how powerful similarity is. Research shows you like names better when they're similar to yours. Yay! <laughs> so we're both, we're both we're fated to be friends. who have the same names. Yeah. Oh, this podcast is making a whole lot of sense. Yeah. That's cool. So there's one section about this book that I really did like in terms of networks. So I think mostly you think about networks. At least I do. I almost think it has a sleepy connotation, and I think that's because... Networking? Networking. Yeah. And he positions it a little bit differently. He really just talks about it being, like, the Make best friends. networking is just making friends, mm-hmm. which is nice. It takes away that sort of, like, salesy, oh, I'm going to use you for what you have and you're yeah. going to use me for what I have. Um, but the, there's a big component of the network, the friend network that he talks about, um, which is mentorship. Right. And I like this section a lot because I think he says a lot of things that aren't groundbreaking about mentors, but um, he talks a lot about gratitude. And so I liked thinking about the fact that I, I'll back up for a second and say that I don't know that I've necessarily had a mentor before, but I really like this field. Mm-hmm. And also because... I haven't necessarily had one. I've tried to be a mentor to yeah. younger people. Um, be- also because it just genuinely really helps me grow to understand what they're looking for and like how they need things positioned to them and what types of things they want to learn and how to help give them exposure to those things. And it's like, it, I want to say it's non-selfish, but it really totally teaches me a lot about mm-hmm. um, like leadership and transparency and communication and setting and operating in a value-driven culture um and there's this one component that he talks about where feeling gratitude and expressing it is like wrapping a gift and not giving it (laughs) and um how basically all successful people have had mentors and that oftentimes they don't do enough thinking to their mentors and I just thought that this this was a really nice lesson I mean, whether or not you've had a mentor, like someone inevitably in your path has helped you and maybe you've reciprocated and maybe there's just a mutual understanding that that's your relationship. But saying thank you to people is a really, really nice thing. It'll increase their happiness and it will also increase yours. Yeah. Yeah. He says that like mentees consistently perform better than people who don't have mentors, but also mentors consistently perform better. So... That's a good reminder. Like, if you're in a position to mentor someone, you absolutely should. And if you don't have a mentor, like, basically his recommendation is, like, keep keep doing doing what you're doing. Keep doing good work. And if you, like, keep making friends and new friends, it will get noticed and someone will, like, take an interest. Don't ask someone to be your mentor. So here when he's talking about success his barometer for success is a little bit different. It's not, it doesn't seem to be fiscally motivated. It's more rooted in happiness where he's saying that relationships are the key to your happiness. Yeah. And don't think about it as networking, just build a solid network of friends and treat them like you would treat a friend. Right. All right. Chapter five, believe in yourself sometimes. Okay. Believe in yourself. So be confident. But confidence can be problematic because it can lead to narcissism and hubris. And confidence, Eric Barker will argue, is the byproduct of success. It's not what makes you successful in the first place. 
Right. Um, and the, the reason that it's dangerous is because it can stop us from questioning and learning and evolving. Right. So it's like, worst case is you become a narcissist. Right. Well, the worst case is you become a narcissist and then you become delusional. Yeah. And when you're delusional because you're overconfident, then that often leads to failure. Yeah. And most of the time you have no idea. Right. Exactly. Because people can actually, like, trick themselves into thinking they're doing something great when they're not. Yeah, that's actually one of the roundups from this chapter. Don't be a faker. Because there are short-term benefits in impressing others. Um but they aren't worth losing trust long-term. So again, this comes back to trust building. Tricking others equals tricking yourself. In this chapter, uh, our author talks about the Buddhist concept of self-compassion. So he says, instead of trying to convince others we're so awesome, it's a matter of being realistic and forgiving ourselves when we're not that awesome. (sighs) Um, And his sort of research case study example here is that self-confidence and self-compassion has all of the benefits of confidence without the downsides. So he basically comes back here to the extrovert-introvert thing, or I think where he's likening the extrovert to maybe possessing a person who's possessing copious amounts of confidence. Mm. And, like, on the flip side, the person who does not have as much confidence. And um, he tells, he especially advises the person with an overwhelming degree of confidence to uh, adjust for their natural levels of self-esteem, stay empathetic and humble, and strive to keep an open mind. Stay humble. Yeah, stay humble. And then, do you remember what he says for the people who do not have enough confidence. I thought it was kind of like a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Oh, he That's, says, right, it's the result, not the cause of success. And yeah. you have to become really good at what you do and focus on improving your skills. You're right. Yeah, he's like, just like work at it, it and it will it. come. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. And the example that he used, which I love, is the whole like, even if you're in a bad mood, when you smile, you're like, scientifically, you become happier. So just kind of, like, you don't want to be, like, lying to yourself, but sometimes you just have to, like, like bear with it and yeah. keep working on things that you've gamified so you can have small wins, you can keep moving forward, you have a sense of progress. Um, and Shout out to Puppy Club, my Instagram DM group that makes me smile every single day <laughs> <laughs> with cute slash dumb things that dogs do makes you feel confident totally gives me confidence a little energy boost all right so our last chapter to culminate this book is sort of our favorite one of our favorite things to talk about as millennials work 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 or work-life balance right and uh okay so i have one quote which i feel like sums it all up go for it I feel like a tool. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, we're always getting ready to live, but never living. The way he kicks off this chapter is really just by saying, like, work-life balance is something that nobody talked about 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, He actually 
pulls up the number of media references to work-life balance in the mid-90s, and it's, like, virtually non-existent. Yeah. And that the reason that this term started to come to prevalence in the mid-2000s is because that's really when people started being connected all the time. Yeah. Um, so they had, And, like, actual work hours got longer. Totally, totally. But work hours also get longer if you can open up your iPhone. Anywhere. And, yeah, and are expected to respond to things wherever you are. Um, all right, so work, 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 or work-life balance. I mean, obviously, work-life balance. Work-life balance. It's important to come yeah. back to this. We're going to overlap so many themes that we've already discussed, like protecting the asset. Nobody's doing good work when they're just, like, grinding away all day long. Um, how to say no. Right. How to make use of your schedule. So burnout is the flip side of grit. So as much as we say, like, grit is so important, yeah, there's burnout. Right. Um, so there was one t- tip that he gave here that I liked a lot about scheduling. I've kind of heard things like this before. I don't remember. So it's like schedule time with yourself. He says we're using our calendars all wrong. That and we're not scheduling work. We're scheduling interruptions. So all those things you see on your meeting calendar every single day when you say like what's yeah. what's ahead for me, anything that's scheduled concretely in there is like a call or a meeting or mm-hmm. a lunch or an interview or something that's actually distracting from you being able to do work. Mm-hmm. And then you need to really block off, use your calendar to block off periods of time where you are working. Yeah, I tried that. How did it go? <laughs> not did so people good. not respect it when they're like, there's no one in your meeting invite? I can calendar serve. No, mostly I was like, oh, right, I'll just move that block till later. I'll move that block till tomorrow. Yeah. Like that thing I don't want to work on. Yeah. I'm just going to move that to tomorrow and well, I'll do it then. So it could I'll work. I'll do it then. It could work <laughs> if you, if you, I, yeah. Stuck to it. Yeah, yeah. I just, that's, it's hard. It is really hard. So, uh, but I don't know if I've talked about this on here, but I, I totally do the Pomodoro method. Oh, no, I don't think you have. Which is you work for 25 minutes, and then you take a five-minute break, and then you work for 25 minutes, and you take a five-minute break. That's really and good. if I can get myself in the right headspace, I find it so productive because I do love just that, like, five-minute, like, read an article or check my personal email or look at Instagram. And then I feel like I don't need to for a while. 25 minutes exactly. Um, And I feel like that's kind of the same idea. So it's like schedule a chunk of time for work, schedule a tiny amount of time for play, schedule time for work, time for play. And I mean, if you are thinking of it, so you could think of it, interpret this in two ways. Like one is your scheduling time that you are carving out for yourself to work because you know you need to just, like, get shit done. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, like, you're blocking off your schedule so other people can't interrupt you during that time. Um, So it depends on also how you interpret it. Like, blocking off your schedule so that people can't just throw stupid meetings on your calendar is sort of a cool tactic. I like that, regardless of how motivated I might be in that block of time or how much I might want to move it. Totally. Tomorrow. Yeah, at least it's there. It's it's a mechanism for saying no without having to say no. Right. Which is something we talk about a lot. Yeah, it gives you a reason to say no. Say, I can't because I have to do this thing. And with regard to learning to say no, Barker also says that very successful people say no to almost everything. Yes. Which is the one that we read? We didn't read The Power of the Positive No. 
getting to yes. Getting to yes. Yes. Yeah, it's very much like that. Yeah. I was at the book. I know. I think it was Essentialism where um, the author talks about Warren Buffett's 10 investments being responsible for 95% of his overall wealth because he said no to even things that seemed really promising and only went with the hell yes. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. If it's not a yeah, it's not, if it's not a hell yeah, it's, it's a, a no. no. All right. So who should read this book? I mean, if you're potentially looking to start a new job, I think this could be yeah. a, a good time to Set read you the up book. Well. If you're in a happy place already, I think that there are certain things about it that might make you happier, or might make you more willing to partake in some of the exercises. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to um, be self-aware if you're in a rut. So some of these books are kind of tough if you're not in a good headspace. Although I suppose the purpose of it is to try to rectify that. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like this is not a good one if you're looking for like motivation. It's not like a traditional. But some of them are. Some of the some of the ones we've read I think would be like yeah. good for that. But I don't think this one if you're like in a rut looking for some real help, this isn't it. Yeah. Also, I would say for, like, someone who's, like, already tried out some self-help, probably a little bit better. You, like, get the format. You, like, get the case study ideas. Kind of, like, know how to do these exercises. But in general, I really like it. Yeah. So his conclusion was kind of funny. It was that success cultivates more success. Um, and I, I guess that's obvious. Right. So, which is another reason that you just, like, maybe don't want to read this if you're in a rut. Yeah. Um, but he, I think, tries to employ specific methodologies throughout each of the sections to get you a little bit closer to feeling like you're successful. Yeah. Whether that's, like, determining that you're an introvert and going with that or determining you're an extrovert and figuring out, you know, how you surround yourself with people to give you more energy, um, like, how you can kind of rig things to set things up in your favor. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's, like, if you're looking to feel more successful, this does help give you some tools for that. Yeah. And if you're, like, already, like, have some momentum, I feel like you could take this, take any number of the tactics in here, and it would help, like, catapult you to success. Right. (laughs) Catapult. You're literally going to be so successful. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. All right. Is there anything you're going to take away, like, and use immediately? I really liked the volunteer help section. Mm-hmm. Um, partially because that mutual feeling of reciprocity is really important in forming and perpetuating new strong relationships. Mm-hmm. But I also liked the negotiations component of all of that, where a Harvard professor in negotiation says that if you're ever going to negotiate anything, people need to like you. Yeah. And yeah. I like that, like, be likable, offer information, have integrity. It's all going to come back around. Yeah. I, I think that's a great one. I like that, too. Which one will you integrate? Um, yeah, I think that offering help right away is something, like, I don't always do necessarily. And it's a nice one. Like, it will just pay off in the end. Um, I think I would, like, maybe go back and do the exercise where it's, like, do you know what you need to be gritty at? If yes, skip to question two. Like, 
are we optimistic? Blah, blah, blah. Um, I think it's a good, it's a good worksheet. Um, and also like, <laughs> and I like the idea of like, of trust coming from, if you cooperate, I'll co- cooperate. If you betray me, I'll betray you. Cause I feel like, like, I don't know. Sometimes I put up with shit. Yeah. And you think and that I there should just be more to of a betray people. <laughs> just kidding. Ooh. No, yeah, I think just like that's our next episode, folks. <laughs> yeah, I think it would just help me to remind myself of that. Yeah, just like have a real clear line. Yeah. Anyway, cool. I liked it overall. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. You Thanks don't need for to listening. read it though. You can just listen to our podcast. And if you liked it, you know what to do. And subscribe to the New York Times newsletter. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. All right. Bye bye. Bye.